she's an American board certified OBGYN. She's the CEO of Jobs.Mom. We're women. We're moms. We're Muslims. And we're talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome back to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm Zabid Mirza here with Dr. Sadaf Lodi. Sadaf, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Zabid. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really excited to talk about uh, today's topic, which is STDs, uh, also uh, short for sexually transmitted diseases. And before we got started, I did want to make a small comment here. You know, it came to it came to my realization when you and I were talking ahead of the show, Sadaf, um, that what we're doing is really outside the boundaries of comfort for a lot of women, Muslim or non-Muslim, right? And there is, and I want to reiterate to everyone listening, there is no shame, there is no judgment, there is nothing to be embarrassed about, and there is absolutely no stigma around speaking about sex and sexual health and sexual needs. Um, And of course, you know, that's very easy for me to say because I can and do speak freely and so the, you do as well. Um, but we recognize that that's not always the case. Um, but there is nothing wrong with talking about sex, with wanting to learn about sex, with wanting to enjoy sex. Um, but we recognize that sometimes, you know, that's not always within people's comfort levels. And we're really here today and, and every day that we're doing this show to talk about the things that maybe you were too embarrassed to ask, you were too nervous to ask. And so if I know as an OBGYN, even your patients are nervous to speak to you about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most patients won't even bring up the subject unless, you know, we as providers prompt them about it and ask them specifically about their, their sexual um, history and, you know, how things are. And, um, and there's definitely a lot of discomfort, a lot of taboo around the subject. So I think it's very important to, you know, just be open with your provider when you speak to them and let them know if you're having any difficulty or any problems in your sexual life. 100%. And again, you know, we understand that it's not within the comfort level. And, you know, we grew up in a culture and in a society that, especially as Muslim women, um, that, you know, talking about sex was completely taboo, right? You didn't talk about sex. You didn't talk about sexual health. I mean, I could tell you horror stories um, that are hilarious right now, but maybe weren't at the time of my first visit with my mom to a gynecologist who was not even allowed to touch me or examine me. So I'm not even sure why I went there. Um, But these are things that we are kind of indoctrinated uh, with from a very early age that hopefully through our discussion, sort of, we're, we're kind of breaking down some of those barriers. Absolutely. Yes. Now we're just trying to open up that discussion and um, even just in our little part of the world, make it a little bit easier for people to talk about sex and um, to talk to their providers about sex, right? That's the most important thing. And talk to your partners about sex too, yeah. right? Um, so before we get started on this really important topic, do you want to hit everyone with our disclaimer just in case anyone forgets what we're doing? <laughs> yes, of course. So 
Before we get into it, the first thing we want to make very clear is that we're not giving any kind of religious or medical advice. So if you have any concerns at all about your health, please speak with your medical provider. 100%. So today we're talking about sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, 100% something that if you think you have, suspect you have, worry you might have, you must speak to your doctor about. But luckily we have a doctor on that's going to take us through some of the most commonly diagnosed STDs, the ones that come up in an STD panel. Can you talk a little bit about what an STD panel is and what kind of diagnoses can come up from it? Yep. So Sabine, typically when patients come to us and they want to be tested for STDs, you know, the typical ones that we test for on a blood um, test would be HIV, syphilis, hepatitis, um, and uh, those are usually the big ones. H- I'm just trying to think. Uh, let's see, HIV, chlamydia. syphilis, hepatitis, right? But the chlamydia, the gonorrhea, um, those, and herpes—that's a blood test as well. So the chlamydia, the gonorrhea, those are actually um, you can do those via urine, or we usually do like a culture. A cervical culture. So it's not, uh, it's not actually a blood test, but, um, but yeah, so when people come in, the blood test is like we said, the herpes, the HIV, the syphilis, um, and the hepatitis and the cultures were the gonorrhea, chlamydia, HPV. So we'll get into all of that, but, um, those are the ones that we usually do a culture. In. And, and when, Sadaf is an, is an STD panel typically conducted, it's conducted, uh, on sexually active women. It's conducted uh, during pregnancy, if I'm not mistaken. Can you elaborate? Sure, of course. So typically we'll do an STD panel. Um, really anyone can go to their provider and request an STD panel. And typically it is done with people that are sexually active. Um, you know, you can start as early as in adolescence, right? So statistics show that uh, most women um, the girls, even adolescent girls will start to have intercourse around the age of 14, some as uh, young as 13. So, you know, you can go to your provider. I think that, um, you know, the problem comes in sometimes when um, the teenager wants to go to their doctor and be tested, but their parents don't know that they're sexually active. So I think that that's kind of, um, you know, the hesitancy that young girls may have. And so, it makes it a little bit easier when you have uh, places where women can go, um, you know, as minors just to get STD testing. So little, not little girls, but adolescent girls will go for STD testing. And definitely during pregnancy, we'll always test all of our women for um, gonorrhea, chlamydia. Um, We don't typically test for herpes in pregnancy unless the patient says that they want to be tested. You know, we'll test for, um, trichomonas, we'll test for BV in pregnancy. So that's usually when we test. And what is your recommendation for people in monogamous relationships um, in regards to STD testing? Is it something that they should still do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, if you want uh, to do it, then go ahead and do it. I don't think that there is really a reason to do it unless you suspect that your partner is having like an extramarital affair or you know, um, that's usually when people end up getting tested or if they themselves are having an affair, right? So they may get tested. However, if you're in a monogamous relationship, it should be pretty safe to assume that you don't need to be tested for gonorrhea, chlamydia yearly. In adolescence or people that 
have multiple sexual partners, you know, we will recommend that you get tested yearly for gonorrhea and chlamydia specifically, because if those infections are left untreated, they can lead to infertility later on in life and can affect the tubes. And so that's why it's so important to be treated and because you can pass it on to your partner. I love that. And and I think that's so important, you know, aside from monogamous, polygamous, who's cheating, who's not cheating. At the end of the day, this is about your health and the health of the people you are involved in. So if you suspect anything, right, please get yourself tested because, and I know Sadaf is going to take us through it shortly, a lot of these STDs can escalate and become larger, more serious issues with lifelong repercussions um, and, and sometimes even the worst case scenario. And before we get into the each, um, you know, each individual STD, I do want to make a small note. We talk a lot about consent, right? When we talk about sex, we also need to normalize if you have multiple sexual partners to talk and ask flat out, have you been tested? You know, a lot of girls, I mean, a lot of women don't even advocate for themselves in a non-sexual way in a relationship where they don't speak up when their partner does something they don't like because girls are afraid that the guy's not going to like them or this person that they're into is not going to be reciprocating. But this is your health. There is nothing wrong before you get sexually intimate with a partner to say, hey, can we have a very quick, awkward conversation about your sexual health? Have you been tested? Absolutely, Sabine. You know, and I actually tell women all the time that come to see me say that, you know, they're getting married and they want to be tested. But I agree with you 100% that anytime you're going to be in a relationship where, you know, you will be sexually active, that it's so important to you know, you yourself get tested, but to have your partner be tested. That way, you know what you're going into, right? And also uh, figuratively and, (laughs) you know, um, but I think it's so important to know a person's sexual history. In fact, you know, I tell this to my patients is that when you are sleeping with a person, right, when you are intimate with that person, you are technically, hypothetically, even sleeping with everyone that they've slept with right? Because whatever diseases they bring with them um, is now being transferred to you, you know, if they have not been treated, or if they carry, you know, a sexually transmitted disease that they, you know, some diseases we don't get rid of, like, for example, hepatitis, herpes, you know, uh, syphilis can stay with you. So, you know, things like that. um, It's so important for you to be tested as well as your partner. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And of course, contraception, we talked about in the last episode, contraception is critical. And, you know, we mentioned in the last episode, for those of you that haven't had a chance to listen, definitely listen to the contraception episode. All contraception does not prevent STDs. Contraceptions prevent pregnancy, right? They prevent pregnancy. Correct. Correct. Right. So the only contraception um, that works 100% to prevent sexually transmitted diseases are condoms, okay? The other types of contraception, for example, you know, like we have birth control pills, we have the IUDs, whatever, um, they will prevent a pregnancy, but they will not prevent a sexually transmitted disease. So to protect yourself against STDs, you know, you have to have your partner 
um, wear a condom. And uh, I think, you know, we mentioned this before that lambskin condoms um, protect from pregnancy, but they do not protect against sexually transmitted disease. So even, you know, the type of condom that you have that your partner wears uh, is important. And so it's important for them to wear the latex or the plastic, um, you know, derived condom as opposed to the lambskin one to prevent you from being exposed to any sexually transmitted disease. Right. So consent, uh, talk about sexual history, use appropriate contraception. So now let's talk about the diseases, right? So the first thing I have here on my list to talk about is HPV. Right. So the human papillomavirus is, as we state, is a virus. And it's a virus that um, a lot of people, sexually active people, will be exposed to it. They say about 80% of both men and women will be exposed to HPV um, during their lifetime. Uh, it's most common for people when they are sexually active with multiple partners. Um, women in their 20s um, will typically clear the virus. So, you know, we used to test um, women for, uh, we used to do pap smears on women starting at the age of 18. And then now we changed it to the age of 21. And, um, and that's because we were picking up HPV and we were doing tests such as colposcopies and leaps and things like that on women that uh, we later found out would just clear the virus on its own. And so that's why we started doing the pap smears later on. And now, you know, there's a whole algorithm that we follow, like, for example, to test for the specific type of HPV and, um, you know, what strain it is and without getting into all the technicalities. But basically, we've changed um, how often we screen women with a pap smear for HPV. Um, the, one of the most important things to note is that there is a vaccine out there. Right. And before we get into the vaccine, the important thing to know is that there are different strains of the HPV virus. There are some strains that cause genital warts. There are others that cause cervical cancer. Um, the ones that cause the genital warts are HPV type 6 and 11. And the ones that cause cervical cancer are type 16 and 18. And, um, and those are the strains that we test for when we're doing a pap smear. Uh, men will typically exhibit, uh, if they get HPV, can get genital warts, as can women. So, you know, it's important. And that's why condoms are so important uh, for protection against these type of genital warts. Um, also, we have the Gardasil vaccine. So there are, you know, different vaccines. There's actually three vaccines that we have that protect from uh, the human papilloma virus. And the important thing to note is by getting this vaccine, um, you know, first and foremost, it's not going to make your kids into like nymphomaniacs, right? It's not going to tell them that they can go ahead and have sex. That's not, you know, I don't think children you know, I, I doubt they're even thinking like that. I think that the most important thing about this is that you're preventing them from getting this virus and it is 90% efficacious. So when children do actually get this vaccine, it protects them from the human papillomavirus, and which is so important. Um, and children as young as nine and up until the age of 26 can get this vaccine. And that's boys um, and girls. Boys and girls, yes. 
And the important thing to note is that if children get it before the age of 15, they start. So if children get the vaccine series uh, before the age of 15, they only have to get two doses. And that's because when they're younger, the immune system is better able to elicit a response to the vaccine. Um, if they start the vaccine series after the age of 15, then they have to get three doses of the vaccine. And you can still get it up until the age of 26. So, you know, say, for example, if somebody never got the vaccine when they were younger, they can still get it when they're older, and that's okay. You know, the main point is to protect them against the human papillomavirus. Now, there is, I am, and, and you are, extremely pro-vaccine, uh, pro-immunization. Um, there has been a raging debate around Gardasil since it first came out, and it continues on to this date, right? Um, and, and we preface this conversation by saying vaccines work, right? They, they are efficacious. We hear from you, 99%. Uh, efficacious, ninety percent, ninety percent efficacious. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, against HPV, which you know has the potential to become cervical cancer, right? Correct. And so, right. we want to make it very clear here that a by giving your children the Gardasil HPV vaccination, you are not making them into nymphomaniacs. You are not encouraging promiscuity. Instead, it is protecting them from, you know, protecting them from the likelihood that they could contract HPV when they later on in their lives become sexually active, become intimate with a spouse, with a partner. Um, And you are protecting them from developing things potentially like cervical cancer, which Mm -hmm. is a very different diagnosis than HPV. Right. And I think, you know, the important thing is, is because, you know, this is labeled as a Muslim sex podcast. It's important to understand that, you know, some Muslim parents may feel that, well, you know, my child is not going to have sex before they get married. Right. Or so they don't need this vaccine. And the reality is, is that we don't know what kids are going to do. One, two, we don't know that whatever partner they end up with, may have had multiple sexual partners, right? So really, in essence, you're protecting your child from getting this virus. And like you were saying, the detrimental effects of this virus, you know, it could be cervical cancer, but it could also be genital warts. And I don't know if, you know, if anyone has seen genital warts and what they look like, and it's not a pretty sight. So, um, you know, I think the best thing we can do for our children is to protect them. And this vaccine works very well. And it's been around for quite some time now. So I think it's so important for us to, you know, do our due diligence, we can research this vaccine, however, it does work. And it's important to get our children vaccinated. And again, you said starting from the age of nine, Sadaf boys and girls can begin to get yes. it. And you can yes. get it until the age of 26. And it is most effective if you get it before the age of 15. Is that right? Right. Because you just, uh, they just won't have to get three injections, right? Three doses. They'll just have to get two if they start, you know, when they're 11 or 12. And that's usually when the pediatricians will suggest for, um, you know, your child to get vaccinated is around that age between 11 and 12. And um, it's a series of two shots, and then they're done, and then they're protected. 
Excellent. So speak to your pediatricians. For those of you that have aged out of the pediatrician's office but still fall within the range of Gardasil, uh, Gardasil's target audience, please I do consider speaking to your primary care provider, to your OBGYN, um, about getting the Gardasil mm-hmm. vaccine. And I just want to say one more thing about this, you know, is that if women get um, HPV and they're in their 20s, you know, it's not a death sentence. And that's important to know. I think that, you know, a lot of times women will get really upset, you know, if they get that um, diagnosis that they have HPV, they just have to remember that in their 20s, more than likely, they'll clear up the virus on its own, you know, and that um, it's, it's really a spectrum when it comes to HPV, you know, in the beginning, when uh, people are exposed to the virus, they can just few of their cells can be um, exposed and then if that exposure continues and it progresses, then, you know, the end of that spectrum is cervical cancer, but it doesn't go straight from, you know, you have HPV to now you have cervical cancer, you know, that's not how it works. And like I said, most times the body will clear that virus yeah. on its own. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and again, you know, the best protection against HPV and any STD is really practicing safe sex, consent, and open communication, right? Um, so let's talk about now, we've, we've covered HPV. Let's talk about herpes. That's another that's another name that gets thrown around a lot. What is yeah. herpes? So herpes is actually, again, a virus. Um, herpes, the thing about herpes is that once you have it, you have it for life. So your body actually doesn't clear it. I mean, it 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 can get reactivated if you're under stress, if you're immunocompromised, if you're pregnant, you know, um, some women will get uh, lesions right before their period, you know, so unfortunately, herpes never really quite goes away. Um, You can suppress it with medication, and so that you don't get outbreaks. But it's one of those viruses that lays dormant in what we call the dorsal ganglia um, of your nerves. And so that's why it becomes reactivated when a person is immunocompromised. Um, There's two types of herpes. There's herpes uh, one and herpes two, which they really don't make that distinction anymore because herpes one used to be our, um, the herpes that we used to get on the lips, right? On um, the cold sores on the lips. And we used to call that the oral herpes. And then herpes two was the genital herpes, which, you know, um, men could see on their penis um, and women could see on their labia or inside the vagina. Um, But now because of oral sex, um, you know, herpes one can go down to the genitals. Herpes two can come up to, you know, cold sores. The thing to keep in mind is that once a person is exposed to herpes, they will always have herpes, unfortunately, you know, and like I said, you can suppress it. The most important thing is to look for the signs and symptoms of herpes, you know, people will have like burning, they can have tingling, um, they can have blisters, they can have scabs, those blisters can be, you know, fluid filled. So all of those things are signs to look for when a person is exposed to herpes. And the most important thing is to get treated right away, you know, before it spreads. And they can be really painful. Um, When patients come in, it can be very severe, you know. And one of the most important things is if a patient has it, a woman, and she becomes pregnant, 
then it's important to tell her provider because if you have an outbreak, if that woman has an outbreak at the time that she goes into labor, she has to have a cesarean section. And that's important to know. So uh, very, very important to have that open communication with your obstetrician to let them know about your past medical history. Because I've had patients in the past um, where it's on their medical record, but when you ask them, they'll deny it. But that can be detrimental to the fetus if it's delivered vaginally and they have an outbreak. What could happen to the fetus, Sadaf? Well, the fetus can have encephalitis. They can have, um, you know, problems with their brain. Um, they can be hospitalized for a long time. Um, they can then, you know, stay in the NICU after they're born. So it's very, very important that a fetus, um, and it can even result in death. So it's important that a neonate, you know, if you're pregnant, that you go ahead and let your obstetrician know if you have a history of herpes so that you can be treated. And actually what obstetricians will do is at 36 weeks, we'll place the patient on suppressive therapy so they do not have an outbreak at the time that they go into labor. And so that doesn't necessarily just mean that you have had genital herpes, right? If you have had cold sores on your mouth at any point in your life, would that constitute as something you'd need to tell your, your doctor? Um, no, I mean, you could tell them. And we're, we're that um, talking about herpes that affects uh, a baby during pregnancy is specifically related to genital herpes. Right. Okay. So making sure that you let your provider know if you've had a genital herpes outbreak. Okay, good. So that's the discussion on herpes. Now, if left untreated, right, herpes, as you mentioned, even if you're not pregnant, creates a host of very uncomfortable situations for the person that has it, lesions, blisters. Um, you had mentioned uh, there are measures to prevent and suppress when you've yes. had an outbreak, right? Um, what do you do? What, what, what would a provider typically provide? What is the course of treatment? Sure, sure. So typically the way that herpes is treated is with Valtrex or acyclovir. And, um, you know, depending on if it's a first time occurrence or is a, it's a recurrence, you know, that'll dictate how many days you get treated for, but that's what you need to be placed on right away. And for suppressive therapy, you need to just take one pill, like say it's acyclovir, you need to take one of those pills or typically, typically Valtrex, and it's like 500 milligrams daily. And so you would take that every single day to suppress um, a herpetic outbreak. And yeah. genital herpes is contagious and can be sexually transmitted even when you are not having an outbreak? That's correct. So there is, there are studies that have shown that um, there is still shedding of the virus, even if you currently do not have an outbreak. So if you're not on suppressive therapy, you can still pass along the virus. Right. So that's why it's important that people that do have a history of genital herpes, that they go on some type of suppression so they don't pass along the virus to their partner. Yep. And you know, again, that's why being honest with yourself, being honest with your partner is so extremely important. And of course, you know, we cannot reinforce this enough. Contraception, contraception, uh, contraception, you know, uh, protection, right, during sex is absolutely uh, of utmost importance, especially during an outbreak. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about now, we talked about two viruses. We're moving into the uh, bacteria family with our next one, chlamydia, right? This is not viral. This is bacterial. So talk talk to us a little bit about chlamydia. So chlamydia is um, a bacteria that uh, a lot of people get exposed to. Um, in their early, in their late teens, early twenties, um, typically, you know, if they have multiple sexual partners, typically chlamydia is accompanied with gonorrhea. And so if a provider tests somebody for chlamydia, they'll always test for gonorrhea. And those two go hand in hand because they have similar symptoms. They're both caused by bacteria. They both have similar symptoms for women. They can have like a yellowish greenish discharge you can also have uh, bleeding um, from this. And that's because that bacteria will affect the cervix so that when the woman has intercourse and if the penis hits the cervix, it can cause irritation and cause some bleeding in between menses. Um, the woman can also have abdominal pain from both of these bacteria. And that's because that uh, bacteria can go up into... Um, the uterus and affect the fallopian tubes and it can cause abscesses forming and um, pus even inside of the abdomen if that bacteria is not treated. Uh, We call those tubo ovarian abscesses that are caused by both gonorrhea and chlamydia. And uh, if not treated, they can go on to affect the fallopian tubes and then lead to infertility in the woman. So that's why it's so important to be um, screened, tested. And also, if you come back, if the patient comes back positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia, so important for the partner to also be treated. In fact, in our clinic, when I used to work um, in a clinic here in New York, um, we used to, if we had a patient that was positive for gonorrhea or even chlamydia, we would have the patient take the medication in front of us. So she would actually, we would actually write her a script and she would go to the pharmacy, come back and take that prescription in front of us. Because this is one of those diseases that is reported to the Department of Health and uh, because you don't want it spreading, right, to other people. So we always want to make sure that that bacteria is treated. And then we write, this is also one of those Um, diseases where you can get a prescription for your partner without the partner even being seen or tested. And that's how important this is because it does cause a sequelae later on in life. And that's why it's important to be screened and treated if a patient has this. Um, In fact, in pregnancy, if a mom has chlamydia that goes left untreated, it can affect the eyesight of the neonate as it comes out of the vagina. Right. And the neonate you're talking about is the baby, of course, right? Correct. Yes. Now, why does, and so this is super interesting, why does chlamydia gonorrhea trigger a report to the Department of Health where where the viral diseases we just talked about do not? Yeah. I think because they're so common. And because the other diseases actually do not lead to infertility, right? These can lead to infertility, can cause uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, and, um, you know, can wreak havoc inside of the reproductive system for a woman. And so because of this, it's so important for the woman to be treated 
for the man to be treated. You know, men have different symptoms when they have gonorrhea or chlamydia. They can have, you know, clear or cloudy discharge from the tip of the penis. They can have painful urination. Um, they can even have pain and swelling around their testicles, uh, perhaps burning and itching. So any of those symptoms, you know, should elicit a response in the individual and have them be, you know, tested. And it's so important if they are positive that they let their partner know, right? So vice versa. So it's important. And, you know, a lot of times um, the other partner will think that their partner is cheating on them and they may be, you don't know. But regardless of, you know, what that may be, it's important that both of them be treated. Yeah. And that becomes a secondary issue after your health, right? At the end of the day, it's it's about your health and whether you're ready to have children or not, especially in younger women, you know, I'm not thinking about fertility when I'm 18, 19, 20, 21, right? That was a very long way down the road think if I thought about it at all. But you know what? The choices that you make then can and do impact you for the rest of your life, right? And if left untreated, it is not only immensely uncomfortable, painful, miserable, you have then rendered yourself, you know, infertile and potentially a partner if you're if you're a man, right? Um, and you know, one thing that I think is so important, Sadaf, that you mentioned is you have to you have to swallow the pride, swallow the fear, and really have those conversations if you have tested positive with your partner and any previous partners that you suspect you may have contracted it from or have given it to. It's important to have those conversations. Right, right, definitely. Um, and one other thing also is, you know, you talk about this all the time and we'll, we'll talk about this, uh, and I, I know we have a plan to talk about this in a future episode, but we talk about, you know, self-examination a lot, right? Like you talk about, you know, breast health and, you know, you are a huge advocate for self-examining you know, your breast and checking for lumps, you can do that for your genitals. You can check your vagina. You can check the genitals of your partner. If you see something that just does not look right to you, you can raise a flag to say, hey, do you think that this is something we should get looked at? Because again, this is something we need to normalize. And we need to remember that at the end of the day, you know, it's our health and the health of our partner and our future that can be directly impacted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that's why open communication and a healthy relationship with your partner is so important, right? Absolutely. So that brings me to the next, uh, the next uh, STD on our list here, um, trichomonas. So this is maybe something that we don't hear about a lot, but it's something certainly that is common enough that it's tested for in, an, in a standard STD panel. So talk to us right. a little bit about what that is. Sure. So trichomonas is actually an STI that's um, caused by a parasite. We test for that by swabbing. So when we swab the cervix for gonorrhea, chlamydia, we'll also do a swab for trichomonas. Typically, you know, patients don't always come in and ask for trichomonas, but we'll do it because it'll come in that testing panel and you'll be surprised. You know, patients will be surprised when they come up positive for trichomonas. And it, actually, it's kind of, um, well, it's 
interesting for us as providers, but not always for the patients, when you can actually see the parasite swimming under a microscope. It's kind of gross, but (laughs) you can can see it. If you get a little bit of that um, vaginal discharge, you can actually see those. um, And and what are the symptoms of trichomonas? Um, Same thing. So it's vaginal discharge. It's usually like a green, frothy vaginal discharge. Some patients can have some itching, some painful urination. Um, You know, men may not have any symptoms at all, but women will come out positive. And if they're positive, then they take what's called metronidazole or flagyl uh, antibiotic for that. And same thing, you know, they need to treat their partner. Otherwise, you'll just be giving it back and forth to each other. Trichomonas is not known to cause infertility like gonorrhea chlamydia is. Um, but it's so important to be tested and, you know, treated. Some reports have indicated that it may, you know, cause preterm labor, uh, preterm contractions, but in either case, it's just important that if you have trichomonas that you be treated. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, on that note, you know, it's, it's amazing the, the mental uh, hoops that some people will do to kind of, because they're unable to unpack some of the conditioning of their, you know, society and their culture. On that note, if you have been diagnosed, you should get treated. By not getting treated, you are not somehow, you know, erasing this diagnosis, right? It's, oh, if I, you know, I'm taking the antibiotic, I'm admitting that I have this. Yes, you have this. Please go and get treated. But, you know, it, it sounds so obvious so that as we talk about this, but a lot of women just, you know, this is literally the, the narrative they will build in their mind, complete right. denial and shame. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're, you're 100%, uh, Zabine, when you talk about, you know, it, it is a taboo, right? Um, it is. And they feel a lot of shame, right? And then at some point, they think maybe it's their fault. Maybe they're partner wasn't attracted to them. So they went elsewhere, or maybe there's something wrong with them. You know, it always comes back to blaming themselves, right? For some, uh, someone else's actions. Yeah. And uh, just another reminder, your piety, your religion, your culture, your race, your gender does not afford you any measure of protection from a sexually transmitted disease. You can be Muslim and get gonorrhea. You could be an atheist and get chlamydia. So the level of your religious devotion bears no relationship to your propensity for getting a sexually transmitted disease. Because, you know, again, there's a lot of societal and cultural and religious things that are planted and ingrained into us that we say, oh, I'm a good Muslim. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good person. This is not something that's going to happen to me. Newsflash, it can, it does. And it will unless you are careful, open, honest, and make good choices when it comes to sexual uh, intercourse. Absolutely. So the last thing we have on our list, Sadaf, is syphilis. And I always feel like a like a chill like down my body when I say this word. I don't know why. It's it's been, you know, there's been books and movies and TV shows with patients with syphilis, and the nose falls off. I don't know how real that is, but. You know, what is syphilis? Because this is the creepiest one. Yeah, I, I don't know about the nose falling <laughs> off, but, um, 
But so it is a bacterial infection. It's spread definitely by sexual contact. Um, The first thing a patient may notice is like a painful sore. And syphilis actually has multiple stages. Uh, The first one, the first stage is the painful sore. And then, you know, those sores can resolve, uh, but they're usually on the genitals or the rectum or even the mouth. And after that sore heals, the second stage is characterized by a rash. And then the third stage um, is when it goes and affects the neural system, like the brain, the damage to the brain, the nerves, the eyes, or the heart. The important thing to remember, though, about syphilis is that these stages happen only if, you know, syphilis is not treated. And so, you know, if it's not treated, it means that it was probably never thought of and it was never tested for or screened for or detected. The good thing is, is we test all pregnant women for syphilis during their pregnancy. We, we actually um, test them. Did I say treat them? I'm sorry. I meant we test them um, in the first trimester and we'll test them again in the third trimester. So we test all pregnant women. I think also, you know, so the treatment for um, syphilis is actually penicillin and there's no other treatment. So if somebody is allergic to penicillin, we actually will desensitize them. And even in pregnancy, we'll desensitize them, meaning that we'll give them uh, penicillin in the hospital. So in case they have an allergic reaction, we treat the allergic reaction, but we keep that penicillin going because that's the only treatment for syphilis. Um, if you remember the the way that we know about syphilis and the different stages of it was because of the Tuskegee yeah. um, experiment, yeah. right? So it was, um, and it's an awful, awful stain on um, American history on medicine, yeah. right? For denying uh, African American for first inoculating them with syphilis to see the different stages, and then telling them that they were being treated and they were not being treated. So that is definitely a black stain on the history of medicine here in the United States. But that's why we know about the different stages of um, syphilis. Yes. And we recognize and we respect and we honor those victims um, of these cruel experiments. And we we have to acknowledge um, that non-consensual sacrifice that was made so that we could understand this disease. Um, and it's really their blood, literally their blood, their tears, their bodies that have yielded, um, our modern knowledge, um, and, and treatment, uh, of, of syphilis. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We owe a tremendous debt to, you know, those African-Americans that were used as experiments, right? Yeah. And we can go on about that, but, um. Definitely. So I, I just thought it was important to mention how we even know about the treatment and the stages of syphilis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and thank you for bringing that up, because I think it's important that we also recognize how and at what cost these advancements in medicine and, and especially in reproductive health uh, have come about. You know, they've they've come about as a result of cruel experimentation on marginalized communities, African-Americans, indigenous people, uh, homosexuals, women, right? Um, And so we acknowledge that and we can even, you know, perhaps respect 
that sacrifice by really accepting modern medicine in terms of vaccines and inoculations um, and, and recognize those roots. So, so thank you for bringing that up. Now, as we wrap up, Sadaf, you know, one of the things that I want to remind everyone is that if anything that we discussed here today sounds even remotely unpleasant, right, please remember to practice safe sex, to practice consent, to speak openly and honestly and communicate with your partner or partners, right? There's no judgment here. Um, and to please be proactive in taking care of your own sexual health, advocating for your own sexual health, uh, and of course, that of your partners, as we mentioned before, you know, taking a look at their genital areas, you know, seeing if there's anything strange or, or smelling strange or looking strange. Um, and as it pertains, you know, to even younger children, destigmatizing sexual health, because what will happen is they will either be sheltered as, as we were, right? Not told anything. It was taboo. Won't ask questions. Won't learn. And go out, make wrong choices, learn the hard way, contract scary diseases, be put in non-consensual sexual situations without any knowledge of how to advocate for themselves. And again, your piety, your religion, your culture, your shield, your upbringing is not a shield against that. You can, you know, wear a hijab and pray five times a day and still have chlamydia, still contract gonorrhea, um, still get HPV. Um, and, and I think it's really, really important, you know, to, to remind whoever's listening, there's nothing progressive or liberal or outrageous or controversial about this, even though a lot of people will say that it is at the end of the day, what is more important than your physical health or that health of your child? Right. Absolutely. Zavine, a hundred percent. It's important to have that open communication and, I think that, you know, um, I'm grateful that, you know, I have that uh, with my children. I think it's important for everyone to have, you know, open communication with their children, because if we don't teach them or, you know, speak to them about this, someone else will, yep. right? That's right. And we don't know what that information will look like. So, so with that and on that note, we're done here today. Dr. Sada Flodi, a reminder that we are not giving you medical advice. We are not giving you religious advice. Please seek out your doctor and or your local religious leader for guidance on anything pertaining to those two. I'm Zabin Mirza and this is Dr. Sada Flodi and this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Be safe. Be safe.